Hello, everyone. I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers, and innovators. The future is, of course, a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Karina Vazarova on the show. Karina is the founder of KV Labs. I won't spoil any more of the introduction. We'll discuss certainly what Karina does now. Uh, but firstly, Karina, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. And let's get started with your story, your journey. I know you've had a very interesting journey from sort of law school through to joining a couple of technology companies and then founding KV Labs. Take us back to uh, how you got started with everything. So maybe the law school days and actually one of the things I wanted to talk about briefly is your chess aspect of things because that was very (laughs) unique, at least to me. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit there. Yeah, certainly. I guess I'll begin at the beginning. I um, do have a bit of a strange background. I used to be a professional chess player in Russia growing up. And interestingly, it keeps, even though I don't play anymore, but it keeps coming back to me because I think chess was really my first experience with technology. When I was growing up, it was the times where you had Gary Kasparov playing against Deep Blue and Mm -hmm. people were asking whether AI and technology is going to erase the game of chess and erase the interest in the game of chess and figure it out. Whereas in reality, I was studying chess um, with my chess board in front of me and my computer right next to it. And as a result, you at the time started having 12-year-old grandmasters appearing on the scene just because you know the, the computer the technology was enabling people to get so much better, so much quicker in chess. But I think it was really my first um, introduction to tech and my first introduction to the idea that technology is helpful it is not it's not the enemy do you think that's still the case now not in terms of the enemy bit but obviously technology has got to the point where you know m- multiple times sort of computers have beat grandmasters in chess do you think that's still enabling people to take on chess or other such games go and whatever it might, else it might be and just makes it a little bit easier it's sort of helping to pique the interest in those ancient games Yeah, I mean, technology has attracted a lot of attention to chess and Go, and that has been positive. Definitely the way that AI is going, there's, of course, a lot of ethical questions around it. But I think I still, you know, I'm a believer that it has enhanced the game and has introduced this new, uh, completely new dimension to it. Mm -hmm. And computers and how the computer thinks has become sort of part of the vocabulary among chess players and coaches. And yet to me, it just introduced a new dimension, a computer way of thinking, and there's a human way of thinking, and it only bettered the game at the end. Very cool. Okay. So let's, let's, and then we'll <laughs> dig into some of those computer ways of thinking and, and other logic type things later. So let's go into what happens after you became a chess master. So you went to university after that, I presume? Yes, I actually got um, a scholarship to play on a team in the U.S. in Texas. 
and I was 16 years old. So I was kind of traveling around the world to um, play chess professionally in the US. And, you know, when I, when I got there, I sort of changed my mind and decided that I wanted to go to law school as one does, because, you know, everybody wants to go to law school. Of course. But, uh, <laughs> and I had this dream and I wanted to move to New York and study and practice law in New York. And what did I know? But you know, that was the dream <laughs> at the time. And that's how I went to law school. I went to Hofstra Law and that's what I actually really liked studying law and practicing law and working at law firms. But I was very fortunate that at my law school, we had a law and technology lab. And yeah, that was actually, I, I had no idea about legal tech at the time. And there was this lab and I saw an, an ad on, in, you know, in the hallway and went and met the professor. His name is Vern Walker. He's still running it. And yeah, I thought it was really cool and I got involved and it was around sort of looking into natural language processing and seeing how you can analyze case data and extract automatically certain insights from legal cases and we worked from, with, with developers externally. And this, again, this new dimension was opened up to me. I thought it was really cool. And I remember a friend and I, and I went to a conference as part of the lab and it was a legal tech conference. And at the time it was all e-discovery, obviously mm -hmm. <laughs> a bunch of e-discovery vendors at the conference. And even so we still kind of looked around and we thought, this is really cool. This seems like this, this, this new thing is emerging, this new, yeah, the industry is changing. There's a shift and we really want to be part of it. And that's kind of how my legal tech journey really started. I didn't know that you could really you know, work in a cool company at the time. I, I only knew e-discovery. I only knew right. this NLP um, aspect of it. And after law school, I was planning to work at this pharmaceutical litigation firm. And, you know, the plan was still to practice law. And I just came across uh, Neotologic, mm -hmm. which is a, a no-code platform to build applications. And I can't remember whether it was some kind of a newsletter or I can't remember how I had, I had heard about Neotologic. Right. But I looked into it and I was looking through their website and I was just thinking, yeah, this is what I want to do. This is so cool. And I just get really excited and I send them this email. <laughs> um, it's just like, you know, if you want something, go for it kind of lesson in life. I was like, you know, I'm just going to go for it. And I send them an email and I said, you know, this is my background. This is what I think. And I, I really think you guys should hire me. <laughs> and they just, and they responded and they said, okay, yeah, come, come on in. Let's have a chat. And I met the owner of the company and most of the team in the same day. And I was, yeah, really exciting. And by the end of the day, we just kind of shook hands and said, let's do this. And I joined them as a solutions architect. Yeah. And I remember when we spoke before recording this, one of the things we, we talked about a little bit is actually for both of us, we started getting into this legal technology, legal IT type scene around the same time. And you captured it well as you were talking about going to the legal tech conference in New York, where you know there was a emergence of other types of technology outside of e-discovery and you know some of the other I guess, solutions that have been around for a long time. Right, almost a new breed of um, providers that were looking at what else can we do, how else can we add value. Yeah, so, you know, part of it is very much having 
that, you know, getting introduced at the right time. And uh, certainly if I think back to five, six years ago, whenever that was to now, and you look at what the landscape is now, it is insane how much has changed, right? There's probably yeah. 10 to 15 times more technology providers now than there were at that stage. And obviously that means a lot more competition, but a lot more diversity as well and some more nuanced and unique solutions that probably no one even thought about at that point. Yeah, it's actually really good that you bring that up. I think it's very, very nice to sort of take a breath and just reflect on the fact of how much solution diversity there is today. Yeah, in comparison to, to, to back then, and there's so much emerging at the time, but yeah, the market has really matured. And it is actually very positive and I think really, really cool to see. And I guess as a, so as someone who's just going out of law school, joining a tech company uh, and joining a tech company from a very sort of techie kind of point of view, right? As a solutions architect, what, what was that experience like for you? And, you know, both in terms of learning the business of law and maybe sort of, you know, we talked a little bit about the computer versus human way of thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's add a lawyer way of thinking, which isn't mm -hmm. always the right way of thinking, depending on the situation. But yeah, how, how did that all sort of fit together? Yeah, when I first started at Neota, I just, I really nerded out with the tech. I just, it was so much fun to build apps, to learn all about API and application design and how, how is the computer thinking, you know, what, what is in the black box and how do you create, you know, something that works and something that a user can, uh, can click and, and, and get value from. But really in the beginning, I was just really excited about getting inside of that black box and learning how to make it work my way. Right. And also like you say, the way that lawyers think is obviously different but also similar <laughs> to the way computers think in a way but yeah it was it also sort of taught me to yeah, have the conversations with lawyers learn how to extract their knowledge and their subject matter expertise from them and right. put it into a format that then a computer would understand and i think the, the one thing that i have found over and over again and i know you know there's there are times where you know we've in legal tech, people complain about lawyers and their resistance with adoption. But I do have to say that the one thing I will always give to you know, the lawyer communities is that people are incredibly intelligent. And as users, as in subject matter experts, it has always been very positive and rewarding to work with them and to get their subject matter expertise in paper. And it was always sort of an experience that was made easier, I think, because lawyers in law school are taught to think um, almost in the same way that right. code is written, you know, and if-then statements and the analysis, the analytical analysis that goes through a lawyer's mind is actually quite similar to the analytical analysis that goes through a developer's mind as they're designing a system or as they're debugging a problem. You know, what's the issue? It's, I actually think there are a lot of similarities, which is I always thought that there's a lot of potential for the legal market to be disrupted because mm -hmm. the skill set, I know it's not the technology, not the product skill set, maybe, but it's the, the thinking, the, the mental model is quite similar. 
Yeah. And so let's come back to disrupting the market in a second. There's a couple (laughs) of things I wanted to unpack before we get there. So it's really interesting that you mentioned that. And actually, for anyone who doesn't know Neota, go back to season two, episode seven, where we talked to Jackson Lau of Neotologic. And he goes into a lot more detail about what they do and how it works and why and so on. But it's really interesting that you talk about essentially those different ways of thinking and sort of translating that into logic, right? And uh, there's, there's obviously a couple of similarities and patterns that emerge with you in sort of chess and sort of thinking in that very logical step-by-step way. And of course, you're thinking ahead, but you're sort of working towards a, a defined outcome, right? You know that this is what you want to achieve, or you know there is a, a defined solution. There may be many ways to approach that. And it is yeah. really interesting. And I spoke to someone recently about this and there's a lot of, because there's a lot of stigma, stigma attached, which personally I don't agree with. And I trained as a lawyer as well, but there's a danger to saying, oh, this is the way that a lawyer thinks because that applies in very finite situations, right? When you are actually working on a case, when a deal on a, any sort of matter where you need to apply your legal expertise, that way, applying that way of thinking, that mental model is absolutely the perfect time at that stage. But what happens quite frequently is people tend to fit that in a lot of different ways of thinking. When they're just trying to go about and learn technology, when they're trying to do something else, then you need to apply a different framework and different mental model, just like a developer and so on. But it's really interesting how at least the way that you're talking about it is you're converting essentially you're providing that layer to convert legal thinking into tech focused thinking and vice versa because it does need to work both ways and of course there's other other things that need to put in there uh, i guess so my question for you is as someone who really nerded out with the technology yeah. and who has the legal background what what do you think are some of the ways that you know people can do that a bit more as they're looking into technology as they're looking into adoption of technology how do you make that shift the switch a little bit easier a little bit more flexible yeah i mean it's yeah there's a few things to unpack there i think that everyone is different and not everybody is you know someone that should learn how to code i think there's a lot of different skills that you could essentially implement into an organization in order to promotes you know, innovation, but also promotes ability and sort of drive to try new things, to try technology and to try it in ways that really changes day-to-day experience. And I think probably the key, the key thing that would add value um, and encourage more innovation would probably be the fail fast mentality mm-hmm. and incorporating, incorporating that into you know, whether it's a law firm that's working towards introducing more innovative practices and products or whether it's an in-house team or whether it's any kind of corporate organization, there's, especially in law, there's this mentality of being quite risk averse. And when you go to law school and the way that you are trained inevitably is to identify and uh, account for all the different risks that, you know, lay in front of you in a case or a document in the matter. And in technology, when you're building products uh, and in any industry that you look at that has been incredibly disruptive and innovative over the time, all of them share in common 
failing fast and yeah. trying different things. And, you know, they say only one in 10 disruptors or startups will work out. The other nine will fail. But you kind of need that churn, that turnover in the markets of different players trying and failing and learning from each other in order to get that one out of 10 that is successful, that works, and that you know, is true in a market. And it's also true within an individual organization where if you don't have that culture of trying and failing, mm-hmm. then it's much harder to learn from mistakes and it is much harder to finally get to a solution that, that works. Yeah. And uh, probably the only thing I would add to that is, uh, you know, actually sharing the, the things that you've learned within an organization. Not everyone does that because it is difficult, right? If you failed to share stories of your failures as well as your successes, but certainly within an organization is super important to be able to, you know, create that culture where people are openly talking about, you know, I tried this, it didn't work out. Here's what I learned because that's how you can actually then crowdsource that learning and ensure that everyone actually is able to apply whatever lessons that might be applicable to them as an individual or as a, as a business unit or as a team and sort of move forward from there. Yeah, absolutely. Communication and learning and crowdsourcing knowledge is definitely the key ingredients to, to, to make that work. Yeah. And then you, you talk about sort of, you know, sort of technology, building products and so on. So I guess my abstract idea is, so you went from Neota to then Clause mm. Match and then obviously founding KV Labs. So tell us a little bit about Clause Match. And I guess this is my segue as, as elegant as it might be to, or inelegant rather, into RegTech. So what did you learn from there that you, and then we want to come back to, you know, how that might feed into your views about, you know, how legal services essentially how they're being offered is being disrupted or might be just uh, disrupted in the future sure yeah and it was also worth to mention that um at neota at some point i ended up moving from new york and as the company was expanding into australia and london i was quite fortunate that the team believed in me to sort of send me across the world and help in the global expansion and, and work with the global team which is how i ended up in London. And it was a bit of, how do I call this, like a crash course, an MBA crash course, just because it got me to move from this nerding out in tech for the first time um, as a solution architect into seeing what are the legal tech markets like across the world? What what is it like to build a brand, which now UK and Australian legal tech market, you know, Neota is a big brand, but at the time we were just starting out and it was really interesting to see what that's like. And also, yeah, just building not just applications, but solutions and prototypes and walking into doors with law firms and understanding what it is that they're interested in, what it is that they're not interested in and facing some challenges. And that was that was the time where I actually met Clause Match when I made my way to London and I, they called uh, Neotologic for a demo and that's how I met them and then just met them at a conference in person and also crazy story that the Clause Match COO and I actually played on the same chess team in Texas. <laughs> we both got recruited just at different times, but both are from Russia. So it's very crazy how our life paths led us to a 
we go in Rexheck in London. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something about chess that that, that sends you this way. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, and Quasmatch um, is a Rectech platform specifically. You know, they started out as a document collaboration and document management tool. And when I actually saw the product for the first time, that's what they were, you know, kind of selling themselves as. And I thought it was a really visionary and very impressive product. And I still do because, you know, they're really changing how people work with documents, making it really collaborative and also very intelligent. So you're not just having a, you know, a, a static PDF or Word document. You have a smart document that you can integrate um, into your systems, into your processes, and yeah, and really get data insights from. And I thought that was very, very visionary. And I joined them on the on that journey. And there I really kind of fell in love with product management, which was really cool. And got to know Rectech as a so space. Can, yeah, can you tell us and imagine I don't know anything about it because it's not too far from the truth. Uh, what is Rectech uh, for anyone who doesn't know? Sure, yeah. So Rectech is a regulatory technology. It's the younger brother and younger sister of legal tech. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and essentially what has happened is since 2007, since the crisis, you mm-hmm. have, banks have been... Just financial services have been subject to a lot of regulatory scrutiny, and there have just been waves of waves of regulations hitting financial services, and it's just been more and more increasingly more complex challenge to comply, and as a result, the regulatory and compliance function, you know, has grown significantly and um, has become, first of all, quite a cost center. And quite a complex problem that is facilitated by by technology. And uh, there's really a need now, especially for larger banks, as you have you know these challenger banks coming in and cha- challenger financial services coming in to uh, just to, to be up to speed, to stay on top of the game, and to also use state of art technology in in how they operate. Because you know you have companies. Like Revolut, like Monzo, right. and um, especially Revolut, who, by the way, is using Quasmatch. They went out and said, "Look, we're going to automate our regulatory management, our compliance, and that's how we're going to offer our clients um, a better service in banking. Because you know, we're going to use technology, and we're going to have less overhead and less internal costs." Right. When it comes to regulation compliance, and I think so. So the idea is you're kind of taking something that might be in in the past or in most institutions kind of hidden away somewhere in the back room and sort of making it sort of the front and center, the heart of the organization to say, right, this is, you know, we are going to focus on this because providing or actually making sure that we are leveraging, I guess, in this case, technology and making a strategic decision to have this as a central theme of our business will allow us to deliver higher value to our customers and clients. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's just that inevitably compliance is becoming more and more a strategic function. It's no longer just about knowing what you can and cannot do and responding to internal requests. It's, it is just inevitably becoming more and more strategic because the, the industry is becoming more complex as well. Right. And yeah, that's what RecTech is really about is, is enabling that at the end of the day is enabling that function and 
the way that Quasmatch, you know, sits in the ecosystem is it started with, you know, internal document management, so high risk documents, mm -hmm. um, like policies and procedures. And then it has really grown in the last three years and in, into becoming an end to end compliance solution. So not just documents, but also, you know, how do you distribute those documents within your organization? How do you track compliance and ensure that different teams actually you know, have a culture of compliance? How do you map and track the regulatory obligations that are constantly changing sure. and how they're going to impact your internal policies, procedures, processes. And, you know, that, that is a, is a long process. It's a challenging process. You know, a lot of people are um, trying to, to solve that problem. And there's a lot of space for, for technology there. And that's where ClauseMatch fits now. And it was really also interesting because I, when I was there, we were really learning about regulatory change management mm -hmm. and, you know, going out into the market and asking you know, heads of regulatory affairs and compliance officers, you know, what is your day like? What do you do? What do you struggle with? What are your, what are your pains? What are your problems? What are your worries? And it's really interesting to map that out and understand how, what we could build into the products to facilitate that. Cool. No, that sounds really interesting. So uh, yeah, let, let's, let's have a recap of your life so far then. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, chess master started went to law school worked at Nyota, you know started nerding out over technology there it's fair to say yeah. and sort of got essentially a, a real life almost a real life mba into the business of law firms and so on moved into compliance which by the way it's probably no one thinks compliance is sexy so sort of <laughs> terming it as reg tech certainly makes it a lot more appealing and then that sort of bridges the gap into what we want to talk about next because it sounds like everything that you've talked about around uh, regulatory, uh, regulatory change management and technology there is all about, you know, how do you utilize technology, automation, uh, and, you know, other such vessels to be able to eradicate and remove and reduce the need for people to perform any sort of these low level tasks that are important, but they add little value. And how do you actually get organizations to start thinking about, in this case, compliance and uh, change management in a more strategic way so really they are starting to focus on how does improving these these inputs affect the output and help you solve the business problems that you know your clients are having right so that, hopefully that's yeah. a fair summary and then yeah. obviously you continue netting out over products and so on at this point <laughs> now so what what's the i guess what's the what's the link to you founding KV Labs and what do you guys do? And then I want to start talking about, you know, let's, let's focus on legal in this instance on how that might be more disruptive. Because actually, even though you say RecTech is a, a younger sibling, I, I think it's more, more closely linked to FinTech there, which means that there's plenty of lessons learned from that that could be applied into legal tech, at least in my view. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So in terms of KV Labs, I'm really excited about the future now. <laughs> and what I just found is that I do like to work with different products, different technologies. And I, you know, I, I always loved solving complex problems. And I just wanted to create something, create an agency that would focus on that. KV Labs, my aim now is really to build a 
product agency that would be a you know sort of one-stop shop for someone who wants to you know for like corporate or law firm or an in-house team that wants to build a product uh, whether it's for internal use or taking that product into a wider markets and i want to kind of offer which are the three main pillars of that it's design it's you know, built and it's it's launch mm-hmm. and design to me is applying the modern principles of user experience design so from research you know whether it's customer journey mapping or jobs to be done you know there's so many fascinating techniques out there and i really want to offer the best of the best in, yeah. in in really conducting very thorough very analytical customer market user research prototyping creating designs and and and, and yeah and help and help think through what is it what is this product that you're building how should it look like how should it work what kind of problems should mm. it really solve and then the second pillar would be to build and you know i would focus more on there's a lot of fascinating solutions out there in the market in in legal tech in rec tech and in just tech in general <laughs> there are a lot of tools out there that could be integrated and 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 used to solve problems and i'm a big fan of of no code platforms yeah. um I'm a big fan of tools that exist that have been built by really smart people and i would like to incorporate that and, and work with those teams as well so that's the second pillar and then the third one which i actually the launch the launching of the products is i have come to appreciate more and more um since i've started kv labs and started working on my first projects and it's really the support around communicating um that you are going life with this you know with this product with this solution and, and communicating to your audience you know they say audience come, comes first product comes second and i've come to really appreciate that and it's super important to create a community of users even before you go live wherever you think it is that they're going to love and yeah so the, the the third pillar is really to focus on that and of course to help implement in terms of trainings and, and facilitating adoption if it's something internal but also if it's something external to to really engage with the user audience externally as well and that in itself is a is a skill set that that is part of product management and that's why I also want to include that as well yeah and i think going backwards from where you started there the launch part is super important because you know, I think Seth Godin talks about this. Uh, Kevin Kelly wrote about some thousand true fans, but it's just making sure that you have your your tribe of true champions, right? Because you need that as you are certainly when you're in version one or point one, or maybe maybe the alpha, or the beta of the product to try and sort of move things forward. So that becomes super super important. And then of course the build aspect is is crucial because you know even if you have a following, you have people who are excited about whatever you are building, you're about to go, go live with, it needs to come through in the quality and the delivery of, you know, what it need, what is helping with and how does it actually help solve, uh, you know, complex problems in, in, in the case that you're talking about. And the design bit is, uh, I mean, I, I can nerd out over design all day, but <laughs> it's, I mean, it's super important. One of the articles that you wrote, you interviewed, I think it was someone from Yota, right? Where you're talking about the UI UX of things and 
at the start and we talked about chess, we talked about the back box and we talked, uh, you talked about, you know, you sort of understanding what's happening in there. But one of the things, especially when you are using different, I guess, branches of artificial intelligence, especially things like deep learning, there is this black box where the computer is just using a lot of data to make decisions and you have no idea uh, what the decision tree is, right? Because it's so complex yeah. and there's so many different permutations. And in certain industries, certainly in legal, reg regulatory, compliance, and so on, from the user perspective, it's sometimes in order to gain the user's trust, it becomes so crucial to put in an element that gives them the almost the illusion of something is happening. Here is here is a a simplistic yeah. view of what's going through. Right. And actually, weirdly enough, that there's a lot of this happens in game design where they put in essentially these sort of visual markers to say something's being computed, where in, in a lot of cases, actually, something's already been computed, but they just want to give you the faith that actually it's working. Don't worry about it. Right. There is some step that someone has programmed and designed that's taking in your input before you're provided with an output because I mean, in, in a lot of instances, you can just give people instant output and that makes them uneasy, right? Because they're not used to that yet. Yeah. So the UI, US act, UX aspect really feeds into that. And of course, making things look polished and easy to use and using the right fonts, colors, all of these things that seem, you know, when you see a, a great product, you almost take it for granted because it just seems right. But yeah, it's yeah, amazing get how the much efforts, yeah. exactly yeah, the amount of time and effort it goes through. And I, I work with you know multiple marketing teams on some of these things, and just talking to them, and they're sort of sitting there making minor adjustments to things. And you're like, of course, it doesn't matter, but actually, holistically, the whole end result, all of those things make a huge difference, right? Yeah. But it's interesting you were talking about the, the sort of the black box and mm -hmm. the machine learning, especially the neural network solutions um, right. that you just don't even know what's happening there. I was actually reading about this today and I, I find the topic really interesting, especially, you know, when your end user is a lawyer, um, right. because it is a, just a different crowd in terms of they need to know what's going on. <laughs> right. And I, there's a lot happening in that space in general, in, in data science space. And it, there's a lot of kind of need for that outside of legal space as well, where users need to understand and need to have a way for, for the technology to visualize for them what's happening behind the scenes. And what I actually found really interesting when I was reading about this today is how very often sort of when you deploy AI solutions, mm -hmm. how the insights that they bring from the data sets, when you show those insights to a subject matter expert, how very often they will look at it and say, well, that's obvious. I already knew that. Like, right. Thanks. But, but how you could actually, by visualizing the logic, how visualizing where the algorithm maybe struggled more uh, in, in certain parts of the data sets mm -hmm. or where, you know, where, they, for example, it had a high error rate, yeah. it could actually help the end user or the subject matter expert to, to get an insight from the data set. So by visualizing the, what's inside of the black box, you're adding more value to the, to the end user. And there's just the data science space is just fascinating because you have this incredibly interesting technology um, that is, you know, based on math and we all as lawyers love math. <laughs> and then, you know, you have legal, which is a very different mindset and 
there's so much potential for there to be benefit, but there's still so many user experience challenges. Yeah, and I would probably stretch that to not just lawyers, but any any sort of knowledge worker is just accepting just a result without knowing how something in this instance came to that outcome. It's pretty difficult to accept, right? People want to know what what actually went into what were the considerations that took place, and it is a it's a it's quite a fun exercise because actually, if you sit there with an expert, so let's say you know we create a a, a deep learning model that helps you create a outcome of, you know, these are your, all of your tax form, and this is how much you will get as a refund or how much tax you owe. And you also have a accountant who has been doing it for 15 years. Uh, if both of them give the same answer without showing the calculations, people are more likely to trust that accountant than they are the computer in a lot of instances, right? Even though... Mm-hmm maybe they took the same considerations and neither of them are showing you what work went into it. They just assume that the human being is applying some work and the computer is just magically giving you this information. So a lot of it is just change management and just getting used to it more and more. But it, it is it, it is quite an interesting problem, right? Because as you said, it could be used and it is used quite frequently in a lot of instances, certainly in medical sciences where they are showing to say, actually, the human error rate to diagnose this is X. The computer is giving you a better result, i.e. the error rate is less. These are the things it's actually flagging as anomalies. So you start essentially leveraging the computer model to say, great, let's only show me the anomalies, right? Because as a human being, then I can actually apply other bits of information because that's really what's lacking in a lot of these models they are very, very well-defined. So even though they're absolutely brilliant, this is like the whole thing with chess or go, they are fantastic at playing chess. But if I use you know, Deep Blue and say, cool, play go, it will not do well. It probably wouldn't be able to do it at all. Right? Yeah, this is designed with very constrained parameters. So that's where you can actually utilize both of those things. And at least my view is, you know, ultimately you want to leverage this technology, whatever the technology might be, it doesn't have to be artificial intelligence-based to help augment the work work that a human being is doing, that really leads you to way better advancements a lot faster uh, than trying to say, oh, this is going to replace the work that I'm doing. It's not, right? Use, you know, if someone gives me the option to do all the audio editing for the podcast using some sort of wonderful, you know, AI-based system, I will be biting their hand off because I much rather spend time doing this, talking to you and others than spending time editing the audio, right? So it's just, you know, what, what yeah. do you tend to value more? What, what's the more valuable thing for your audience? No, yeah, absolutely. And one of the only ways to really discover what is valuable and, and what works is trial and error. Very often, you know, you, especially when it comes to whatever technology it is, but especially when it comes to something like a data science project. Those are incredibly complex mm-hmm. to kind of drive into a, in, in, into a state where it's, it's a solution that is adopted yeah. widely by, by the end user base. But any technology that you implement, at the end of the day, you can sort of sit there and, and come up with this perfect scenario of how things are going to work out. But you know, until you actually give that solution into the hands of the end users and, and get that feedback and have them try it for X number of time, you're just not going to be able to to know. And 
you know, each, each implementation should really revolve around trial and error. And I honestly, time, time and time again, I think it's the only thing that really works and, you know, trying to do any sort of waterfall mm-hmm. or, yeah, trying to solutionize heavily in the beginning and just coming, coming in with the mindset that you all, you know, the answer. That's a very common mistake. And you always come in with the mindset that you're going to find the answer. Um, and that's the only thing that works. Yeah. Uh, as someone once told me, you should prepare, but never script <laughs> because yeah. that way, that way you can sort of be agile and pivot as you need to. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So as you, as you're working on and we're sort of coming towards the end. So as you're working on sort of, you know, helping clients, um, design, build and launch, what, what are some of the ways that you are either seeing now or you think uh, your hypothesis, I guess, um, of how there might be a disruption in how legal services going to be offered or is already being offered compared to, you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah, sure. So my, I mean, I've been hoping and for years really waiting for there to be a disruption in a B2C space in legal. And it's, it's definitely a challenging area just because of the nature of legal services and how personal they are to a lot of people. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why lawyers are, are involved. Right. Um, but I, from the very beginning, I thought there is still a lot of potential for disruption in B2C space for people to identify areas that could be the areas of law that could be productized and commercialized and, and find an audience. A lot of it has started happening in startup law, if you could sort of package that yep. the subject matter. I mean, naturally so, because these guys are probably the number one audience that will demand technology to be, to be implemented. But, you know, there, there's examples there. We, of course, have legal zoom um, and the likes coming into space. And interestingly, most of the disruption in law starts around documents. But you also have immigration space, I, I find personally, because it's been very um, close to my heart. I've, I've been traveling around the world and dealing with immigration in different countries and facing a lot of struggles with it. And I think it's also a space that is absolutely ripe for disruption. And there's definitely a lot of use cases there that could be very largely automated with technology and offer a better experience for people. So I do, I think in, in B2C, I'm, I'm very hopeful um, yeah. that there will be a disruption there and people will come in and, and see opportunities. And in, in legal, I, to me, it will be about the challenger law firms. And, you know, similarly to challenger banks, and, you know, you said, what can we learn from fintech? And direct tech. And to me, one of the main learnings is the, the challenger bank phenomenon and where you have extremely ambitious people, you know, such as the founder of Revolut. I was very inspired when we worked with them while I was at Quasmatch. And, you know, someone that comes into this very legacy, very traditional industry, you know, and I remember reading that people would, would tell him that you, you can't do it. You know, you can't come in and, and offer a new new way of, of making payments. You just, right. It's just too difficult. And, you know, it just took him, you know, this one very ambitious person to sit down and, and 
uh, map out the entire process and say, look, actually, it is possible. I just have to flip a few things upside down and and, and introduce a dis- disruptive new model um, of doing yeah. business in the space. And that will happen in, in law. And you see this already. You see this with, you know, for example, Deloitte Legal mm-hmm. coming out. And there, are, you know, there's a few uh, new law law firms as well that are in the space and are trying different models. I mean, of course, we also had some recent news from the Silicon Valley that weren't as promising, but you know, the industry is trying, is trying new models. Um, and that will be where disruption comes from. I, I, I don't believe that it will be coming from traditional law firms right. changing because the, you know, the billing model, the, I think the incentives are just not there. If I'm completely honest, I think it's just not, the, the incentives are just not there. The economic incentives, and mm-hmm. therefore the model needs to change in order for those incentives to drive disruption. Yeah, that's a really good point. And by the way, for anyone who doesn't know who what Revolut is, which probably anyone in the UK or Europe will know, but for the US audience, they are a financial technology company, uh, also categorized often as a neobank. Uh, really worth checking out the story. They founded in 2015. And as of last year, they have like 1600 employees headquartered in London and they have revenue of like, I don't know, close, close to probably about 75 million US dollars, if not more. And really quite very, very cool, interesting story. And the way actually they went around uh, tackling the, the, the banking industry in the market and the way they certainly disrupted, but actually the, the very strategic way in which they did that to allow them to be successful is really, really cool and quite, quite unique. And they are coming to the US. No affiliation here whatsoever. Just know of them and interesting approach. I, I would say probably your comment about legal. I, I, I agree with most of that. 100%. The incentives aren't there to drive the kind of behavior that might be required in the future. So one of two things really need to happen is probably others as well. One is to either change the incentives, right, that allow people to want to do something a bit differently. Because frankly, if something is working, and people are, uh, you know, incentivized to continue working in that way, then why would you change until you absolutely have to, or you start getting people that come in from outside of the, the industry, which actually is becoming certainly more common at a, at a C level, uh, for some big firms, certainly some global firms, and they'll start applying their learnings from other verticals and other industries all together. Some of them are for management consulting, some of them for life sciences and logistics and, and, you know, a whole host of other things. And as they come in and then you'll start seeing this new flavor and blend of ideas in how you execute, even if the models stay the same. And that lays the groundwork, at least I hope for. Uh, a, a deeper level of change later on. Uh, but I really I like the, the term, the challenger law firms, because if someone does need to probably challenge some of those things. And, you know, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of really great things about how law firms are run as a business, but there are some things that, you know, again, looking into what your clients are demanding probably needs to be tweaked. Yeah. No, I just, I do think that, you know, it's, I am a believer in, in, economic incentives driving you know companies and how they operate and how they organize themselves until and that point i think will also come until the the billing model changes and how the services are um, offered changes fundamentally 
there are just less incentives to, 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 to disrupt the industry. It doesn't mean that, you know, that law firms won't implement technology, that they won't stay innovative, just like, you know, more traditional banks are continuing to be innovative and introducing technology. But it's just, I don't think that disruption in the market is going to come from there. It will come from, from new players coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Well, thank you so much, Karina. That was a fantastic conversation. If people want to find out more about KV Lab, about what you do, what's the best place? I'll link the website for sure and the uh, and the LinkedIn page as well. But yeah, happy to for you to sort of have a ask of the audience or sort of share a bit more information how they can get in touch. Yeah, probably LinkedIn would be the best place. We put out quite a bit of content and. It would be really, really interesting to engage with everybody and get more, more feedback and to create a bit of a platform discussion um, on LinkedIn. So it's definitely our LinkedIn page. Perfect. Well, yeah, thank you once again. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you and uh, hopefully we'll see each other in London soon. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Priti Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.